Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. Well, here we are again. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the legal merry-go-round, where Mondays we talk about marriage things, marital Mondays, and Wednesdays we talk about criminal stuff, wrongdoer Wednesdays, and Fridays we talk about injury types of cases, fender bender Fridays. So here today, we are going to talk in the world of Fender Bender Fridays, where there's not an actual injury, but it has to do with negligence and the civil responsibility for those individuals who are negligent. And in fact, they're negligent because they had, or maybe they didn't have, as we're going to learn in maybe a case or two that I'm going to talk about here today, they had a duty to warn others. So let's just get right into it. But first, I do want to remind everyone that as I am an attorney in Maryland and Virginia, and I handle personal injury cases, auto accidents, workers' compensation cases, slip and fall, the occasional dog bite kind of thing, I am happy and ready to help you anywhere in the United States with any type of a case because I have an extraordinarily large network of attorneys that I know all across the country. And if you reach out to me, I can make a referral to them. There's no referral fee whatsoever. And then the attorney that I'm going to send you to is someone that you know you can trust. So let's get into it today. The first case is one where uh, at the University of California, they had a bevy of doctors who were psychiatrists and therapists to help their students. And in this particular situation, there was a student who I would say had some pretty violent propensities, and he was going in and out of therapy with a particular doctor there at the University of California, uh, telling the therapist that uh, he just was so angry and that he was going to go kill somebody. And eventually he told the therapist that he was going to go kill a young man. Uh, the therapist had no idea who the young man was, but the name was given. Well, there's not really much more to talk about the facts of this case because I think it's pretty clear. And you might think it's pretty clear too. Ultimately, the question was whether the therapist had a duty to warn uh, this individual who now she had the name of the potential that uh, her patient was going to kill him or intended to kill him. There's two sides to the story, depending upon who you're listening to. I'm sure if you were the person that was the object of someone wanting to kill you, you'd say, well, of course, the therapist is... Uh, you know, uh, of course, has to, to warn you. On the other hand, if you're the therapist, you've taken an oath and it's called the uh, patient-doctor um, confidentiality. 
And there is a concern because if patients know that their doctors and therapists are going to reveal their innermost private secrets and thoughts, the clear understanding is that that would stifle what they would otherwise say, and they might not be able to get the therapeutic help from the therapist to be able to work through those problems. And then there's always the question of whether or not uh, they're really going to carry out uh, what they're saying in those therapy sessions. Well, I said there weren't too many more facts, but I'm guessing that you guessed, well, the uh, the therapy student, the, the one who was describing that he was going to go kill this other person, he did. He did. And so the parents of the other student who was killed filed a lawsuit, uh, two lawsuits actually, one for wrongful death uh, by and against the, the student who killed their son, and the second against the therapist claiming that she had a duty to warn. So after the break, I'm going to come back and I'm going to share with you what happened. The next case takes us up to that cold state, Minnesota. Now, you know, I have lived my entire life in the Washington, D.C. area, except for about three years when I was in Springfield, Massachusetts uh, for law school. And that was a cold place in the winter. In fact, on my birthday in late January, I came out that morning to go to class and it had snowed overnight so much that I couldn't find my car. I mean, it was just the most hysterical thing that I'd ever seen in my entire life. It's like, okay, guess I'm not going to school today. I can't even see my car. And by the time I shoveled it out, you know, the, the classes would have ended. So the reason I'm sharing this, and I mentioned the cold place of Minnesota, I've been in positions over my lifetime with uh, parents who describe that their children want to go north to school. And I'm scratching my head and just not completely, you know, uh, the discussion is, is of course, they want to go there and there's lots of good reasons. But why would anybody want to go north when it's cold? Why wouldn't you want to go someplace south where there's, you know, beautiful uh, weather and ocean and beach? Anyway, just my little, uh, my little quirk. But uh, I don't know how I rambled into that. So we're talking about Minnesota. And in this particular case, um, there's lots of lakes apparently in Minnesota. There was a gathering of a whole bunch of friends and they went out on a boat. And the, uh, um, uh, the boat owner was a guy by the name of, of Herman, who was 64 years old. And among the guests that he had on his boat that day was a young man by the name of Harper, who was 20 years old. Now, the ages ranged from, I guess, maybe 20, Harper might have been the youngest, up to Herman, who was 64. Um, but Herman didn't know Harper. He was a friend of someone else who he had invited, and he was uh, very generous and said, sure, come aboard. Let's let's all go out and have a nice day of fishing and uh, swimming and uh, enjoying the water here, enjoying the water. So they go out, and they they uh, put down anchor or something and decide that they're now going to go swimming. Well, Herman had no knowledge whatsoever as to whether or not Harper had any swimming experience and particularly uh, whether he had, had ever, ever had diving experience. Uh, Harper observes, according to all of the testimony, 
um, the uh, 20 year old, the guest, that most people going swimming were just sliding into the water. No one was diving. Herman himself uh, was still on the boat waiting for um, all of his guests to get into the water. Don't know particularly what he was doing, but, you know, perhaps just making sure everybody was okay. And then he sees Harper standing as if he's going to dive, and he doesn't say anything. And Harper dives in. And the water apparently is not as deep as, you know, it should have been for Harper to be able to dive. Certainly not the water's fault. I said should have been. Water can't should have or should not have, I guess, right? But Harper dives in. It's too shallow. He hits his, his head and he dies. Harper's family sues Herman, claiming that Herman had a duty to warn Harper uh, about the shallowness of the water, as if he would have known anyway. I don't know how he would have known, but maybe as a experienced boater, and maybe he'd been there before, who knows? There's a lot of theories, but the claim was that he should have warned uh, Harper not to dive in because there might be a danger, he might hurt himself, and that he should have asked Harper, according to the parents of uh, um, um, parents uh, Harper's parents, uh, he should have asked, do you have experience diving? So the question came for the court um, whether or not Herman actually had this duty. Did he owe a duty of care uh, to warn his guests that the water was too shallow to dive into? So we're going to get to the answer to that after the break. The third case, the third case is, is a very upsetting case. This is a case where the duty to warn uh, comes out of a relationship of husband and wife. The husband, every day for over a year, was going to his next-door neighbor's house where there were twin young teenage girls. I mean, they might have been 12, 13 years old. And he was visiting with these young girls every single day for over a year, often when the teenage girl's parents were not there. Well, again, my guess is you know where this is going. The husband was a pedophile, and he was sexually abusing these teenage girls and making threats to them that they never uh, should say anything to anyone or he would kill them and kill their parents. We've all seen these types of stories on the, uh, uh, the TV uh, crime shows, I'm sure. And it's disgusting. This happened actually in Tennessee. So I guess at some point, the teenage girls manifested the the ability to to tell someone and the whole thing was discovered. Uh, The parents of the teenage girls and the teenage girls sued the wife in their lawsuit, uh, as well as suing the husband who had been molesting them. But they sued the wife on a theory that she had a duty to warn them that she knew or should have known of her husband's tendencies, that he was a pedophile. And they claimed that if they had been warned, all of that abuse would not have taken place. So after the break, I'm going to come back and tell you what the court there in Tennessee decided. Don't go far. No break yet. I want to talk about one of my favorite stores, 
My favorite places to go for lunch, Subway. Yes, I love Subway. They're fast, they're cheap, they're good, that's fresh. Well, okay, in 2013, a group of Subway customers filed a class action lawsuit against the chain, claiming that its foot-long subs didn't always measure up to 12 inches. Before the lawsuit was consolidated, some of the plaintiffs were seeking up to $5 million from the sandwich chain. The judge called the case very weak, but Subway decided just to resolve this and agreed to make sure that subs were always the proper size in the future. They were going to pay $520,000 in attorney's fees. Oh my gosh. And $500 to each of the 10 plaintiffs. Subway, always fresh. All right, now let's go to the break. Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. Well, I'm back, and I hope that you are. We're talking today about the requirement of warning others when you know that they may be in danger based on information you get. The distinction between the examples that I discussed in the first half, a therapist, and then two other just average people, if you will, not professionals, is stark. Therapists have a duty to warn. So in this particular case, you recall I shared with you that This particular therapist out at the University of California was treating a student, a young man, who disclosed to her that he wanted to kill another student, and he did that. And a lawsuit was filed by the student's parents, including against the therapist, claiming that the therapist had a duty to warn. And I discussed with you the opposite theories, that on the one hand, yes, let's warn because that could protect others if you know there's a potential danger to others. But on the reverse side, that could certainly quelch the willingness of individuals who need therapeutic help 
to go and seek out that help or to disclose fully everything that is bothering them if they know that anything they say could be disclosed, because there is, again, that doctor-patient confidentiality thing. So what happened in this case? I hope that you have guessed, and you are right if you did, that the therapist was determined to absolutely have a duty to warn of the danger to a third party. Uh, now, I want to share again the back and forth with you, but now you know the, the result, and it, it is the right result. Therapists, according to the therapist, cannot accurately predict what patients are going to do based on what they say. Um, the, uh, the therapist says that even if they could predict it, um, that they owe no duty to a potential victim to warn them. Well, that's just absolutely crazy because that's not uh, the rule for, for a professional psychotherapist. Therapist said uh, that free and open communication is essential to the therapist-patient relationship, and that's true enough, uh, so that a breach of that trust uh, could, could be very dangerous to all therapeutic patients in, in all situations. Again, the result was that a court ruled here out in California that, well, no, despite all of that, there's a public policy that weighs the necessity to prevent someone from being killed in a case. Uh, that's the greater good for society than to preserve a doctor-patient relationship. Well, I took a little time and I went and actually researched this, and we have the American Psychological Association's Ethical Principles and code of conduct standards that says that psychologists must disclose confidential information uh, when, even without the consent of the individual, um, where first mandated by law, and second, to provide needle, needed professional services. So in a situation like this, a therapy uh, individual might disclose something to the therapist that uh, screams out that they need other help. And so in that kind of a situation, it's legal, it's appropriate, and it's necessary that the therapist reach out to someone else that's going to be in a position to really help this person and let them know what's going on and try to uh, hook up that relationship between that next person who can really help them and their, and their patient. To obtain professional consultations, absolutely a, a necessary thing for disclosure. Now, to protect the client patient, a psychologist or others uh, from harm is one of the reasons that disclosure is allowed and required. And interestingly enough, I didn't know this, to obtain payment for services from a patient uh, in which instance the disclosure is limited to the minimum that's necessary to achieve that purpose. So imagine that... Uh, the individual uh, says they have insurance or something like that to get uh, payment for their services, but they never submit to the insurance. Well, in that instance, the doctor can go to the patient's insurance company and, and reveal certain information to make sure that he or she is paid. Cases involving protection are the, the, the gold standard here for the allowing of disclosure when it comes to professionals, psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, uh, in the case of child or elder abuse when others are, are potentially in danger. I want to move now to uh, 
the second case that I talked about earlier. This was the case in Minnesota where the owner of the boat, uh, Herman, uh, 64-year-old man, um, didn't warn Harper, a 20-year-old young man who was a guest on his boat, never had met him before, that it might be uh, not such a hot idea to dive in from the boat into the water uh, because we're not sure you know, what the depth of the water is and you might hurt yourself if you hit bottom. Uh, a lawsuit was filed uh, by the parents of Harper, you know, whose son had been killed on this boat, uh, on that dive. Well, the court ruled that there is no duty to warn. Uh, Herman had no duty to warn Harper that he should not dive in because it might be shallow water. And they went into a discussion of something that's that's uh, key words, if you will, in the law. It's called a special relationship. And the court ruled that there was no duty on Herman's part to warn Harper because they had no special relationship. So you can say, well, what is a special relationship? Let's give another example to make to make this understandable. Let's suppose that uh, Harper uh, was on the boat and was well known to Herman, which was not the case here. And let's even further suppose that Harper uh, was told that he's there to uh, make sure that Harper has a good time and to watch out for him because Harper uh, has uh, uh, cognitive difficulties. He's uh, uh, got emotional, mental, uh, psychological difficulties, and he is what some people might refer to as slow, uh, special education classes his whole life, that sort of thing. And Harper uh, is on the boat only after assurances that Herman, the boat owner, is going to take care of him. Well, in that situation, there's clearly a special relationship where he assumes the responsibility for Harper's well-being. Then if he sees Harper getting ready to dive in, he's got to yell out to him or physically run over and stop him. That's the difference when there's a special relationship, and I've given you a very extreme example, but there's many in the law that would allow for the understanding that in one case, he didn't know this guy at all, and in another, there was something between them, some reason that he would have to take care of him and look out for his well-being. So in this case, again, a court there in Minnesota ruled that yes, um, uh, there was an unfortunate situation, but no, Herman was not responsible. He didn't have any duty to warn Harper not to dive in. The third case I said was very upsetting, and this was the case in Tennessee where the wife uh, of a pedophile sees her husband virtually every day for over a year going next door to visit with two young teenage girls. And again, uh, he is he is abusing them and molesting them. When it comes out, uh, lawsuits are filed, and including the wife of the pedophile claiming that she uh, she has a duty to warn because she should have known or she knew that her husband uh, was a pedophile and that uh, he was uh, up to no good visiting two young teenage girls, oftentimes when their parents were not there. Well, I am certainly not a psychiatrist. I am certainly not someone who knows all. I don't have a crystal ball. I think the court made the wrong decision here. 
they held the wife responsible. They said that she had a duty to warn these young women. They had, uh, she, they said that she had enough information that she knew that her husband was a pedophile and that, uh, she should have warned these young girls and her parents next door. But as you read the transcript of the case, the court made a leap in saying that she knew that her husband was a pedophile. I read this several times and I just couldn't figure it out how anyone could say that she knew that. Again, not being in that world, not experiencing it, thank goodness, in my own view of, of things during my lifetime, it is clear from enough information that I've seen, and again, it's a limited view, and this is why I hold my opinion in this case, but pedophiles are very good at hiding what they do. I mean, how many times have we seen these types of things where the family members are so shocked because that's 180 degrees different than what they knew of, of the abuser? Um, I don't see anywhere in the transcript where there's any information that the wife knew this. And, you know, yes, is it strange that the husband would be going next door to visit with the girls? There isn't information that would lead me to understand what explanation he might have given his wife as to why he's going next door every day. But it might have been that he was just there tutoring them. Uh, again, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be uh, ridiculous. And yeah, it is a little bit strange. And I'm sure the, ma the wife made inquiries. And I'm sure the husband gave her satisfactory answers. But in this case, the Tennessee court decided, again, that the wife did have a duty to warn uh, the little girls and um, these young teenage girls and their parents. Uh, theoretically, of course, and if that had happened, the abuse would have stopped and the girls would certainly be much better off. Duty to warn. That's a very, very tricky thing. I generally fall on the side of uh, believing that, yes, no matter who you are, if you're aware there's danger to others, you should warn. Because the worst thing that can happen is there was no danger, and the one that you warned then gets mad at you and gets upset and even uh, distances themselves from you for making such outrageous accusations. But I think on balance, that's probably better than not warning and allowing potentially for abuse, neglect, problems to, to develop. And from what I have seen, again, in my limited view of the world, when warnings are made and the accusations or the concerns are actually false, the one who was warned eventually recognizes that that was a good thing they were warned and come back and the relationship is even stronger because there is an understanding that the one who was warning really did care about them. This is that classic as well, your best friend is cheating on his or her fiancé, and are you going to tell the fiancé? Or you're the fiancé's best friend, and you learn uh, that the intended is cheating. Do you tell? Well, again, this is a classic kind of conversation, and I always am the one to, to step up and offer my two cents worth. Yeah, you tell. You tell. When we get to the professionals, there's no issue. Therapists have to tell. Doctors have to tell. There's a whole list of people in uh, statutes all over the United States when it comes to child abuse 
and child neglect professionals who are required to tell. They're called mandatory reporters. Those are criminal acts if they do not report to authorities suspected abuse of children who they think might be abused or neglected. Doctors, social workers, educators, teachers, psychologists, every state has a different list, but the intent is clear. If you're in a professional capacity and you even suspect abuse or neglect of a child, absolutely, yes, you have to report it to authorities and then let the chips fall where they may, because it's certainly better to report it and be wrong than not to be reporting it and find out that abuse has continued. This has been another episode of the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I always want you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. And don't ever hesitate to reach out to me on my website to ask for a referral if you need help anywhere in the United States. I'm going to send you to somebody that you know you can trust. Until next time, this is your host, Paul Samico. Be safe. Thanks for listening to The Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real-life legal situations. Thank you.